If I've not had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Alan. I am one of the elders here as well as uh, the, the lead pastor. And so we are thrilled that you are with us today as we have gathered to worship. Um, I, I, even as I say that, I, I want to remind us that when I say we've gathered for worship, that is a true statement. But the reality is we don't just worship when we gather. Instead, we are called by God to worship him in every single thing that we do, say, think, imagine. The lives that we lead should be lives that are lives of worship. If you wanted to jot down a verse to look at that, uh, kind of getting ahead, we are, uh, uh, you could jot down Romans 12, 1 and 2, and that really kind of walks through what does it look like to offer our lives, our very being, in an act of worship to the Lord. We are in the middle of a series uh, for this entire year. We are walking through the New Testament a chapter a day uh, for the entire year. A chapter a day, five days a week. And so we've called it Foundations New Testament. And out in the uh, hallway, there is a section of uh, reading guides if you'd like to grab one to follow along with us. Also at the bottom of your worship guide, it shows us that we are reading from 2 Corinthians this week, chapters 8 through 12. And I uh, would encourage you that if you don't have a Bible reading plan, if you're not uh, doing some daily reading, jump in, be a part of that. And even if you've not uh, read up to this point, you can catch up. Uh, not catch up, but you can just jump on the train uh, right there this week. Uh, we are in a series looking specifically, though, at 2 Corinthians. And we're talking about what does it mean to live a sent life. To kind of get us started this morning, I, I would ask you to consider our history is actually a history of rebellion. Have you ever noticed that? Here in the United States, we kind of started with a little bit of a rebellion, and there's been rebellion through the years, and we can look at our culture, and we can see that we kind of like to bow up at times to authority, uh, and hopefully, hopefully in a good, righteous kind of way, but not always. But the reality is we have a history much richer and deeper in rebellion than as it pertains to the United States of America. The rebellion started all the way at the very beginning of history in the book of Genesis. Uh, think back with me, if you are familiar with the story, that God created this world and he created mankind. He started history with Adam and Eve, the very first two humans, and he crafted a perfect garden and he placed them in that garden for them to worship him and to have communion and relationship with him in fact we get the impression from the book of genesis that that they kind of walked with god literally as they spent time with him uh, on a daily basis until something very major took place you see when god created adam and eve he said y'all can eat I don't know that he said y'all, but he said y'all can eat of anything in this garden, but you cannot eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was one thing they were not to eat. And in predictable fashion, Adam and Eve being humans bowed up against that one instruction, and they had a blatant rebellion against God. In in chapter um, uh, 2, I, I guess, it says that they looked at this tree, they saw that its fruit was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and they desired to make themselves wise by eating of this tree. So our history runs deep in rebellion. 
Sin entered the world right then. What was the result of that sin? What was the result of that rebellion? They put themselves at odds with God, and they said, God, I know you said this, but I say this other. God, I know you claim to be king and ruler, but God, I'm going to take the reins and reign and rule and do what I want to do. And then the story goes from there, that they were kicked out of the garden. There was consequences of their sin. Scripture throughout the Old and the New Testament makes it clear that 100% of us are sinners as well. And that that sin in our lives, it immediately has the consequence of scarring and severing that relationship with God. God made you, just as he made Adam and Eve, to be in relationship with him and to bring him honor and glory and worship him forever but sin got in the way and just as with adam and eve your relationship with god has been severed because of your sin and because of your sin because of my sin we are at odds with god in fact if you look at your notes on the back of your worship guide you'll see the first point that i have and that is that sin has made us enemies of god I'm not going to take the time to read this passage either, but you may want to jot it down. Romans 5.10 literally says that we are enemies of God. Because whenever I look at God and say, you cannot tell me what to do, I will show you who is boss, then I am an enemy of his. Now, isn't that a wonderful way to begin a worship service to remind us that we, as humans, are at odds with God. The good news is it's not going to stop there. But we have to understand that portion in order to pick up the passage to understand what Paul is telling us in 2 Corinthians. But before we read the passage in 2 Corinthians, I want us to think real quickly. If we are enemies of God because of our sin, if our sin has severed a relationship with God, if we now are no longer friends with God, but instead we are enemies with God, what is it that we can and should do to correct the problem? There's all kinds of solutions out there. Maybe you have tried these. Maybe you are trying these. Is there any hope? Can I be a friend of God again? Surely, surely if I just try harder, he'll like me more. That, that's what I'll do. Maybe if I just stop doing the bad stuff that I'm doing, and if I'll do more good stuff, then I can kind of get on this cosmic scale, and my good stuff will outweigh my bad stuff. Like, if I could just do that, then surely God and I could be friends again. Or maybe if I just went to church more often. I know the preacher's kind of boring, but if I'm at church every single Sunday, then God will give me a gold star, and he'll be happy with me once again. Or maybe, uh, I would say when we pass the plates, we're not doing that right now, and we're not taking an offering by passing plates. Instead, there's boxes at the back of the room, and many of you continue to give that way or online. And maybe if I just gave more money to the church, like I could buy God off, and he would be happy with me once again. Man, if I just tried to be a good person. But guys and gals, there's nothing that you and I can ever do to get back into good graces with God. You see, our sin is so ripped apart and severed 
the relationship with God. Our rebellion against God has so removed us from the holy, perfect God that there's nothing that I can do to get his attention. There's nothing I can do to live up to his standard. I'm, I'm quoting from Romans quite a bit right now because I'm reading through Romans because that's where our next series is taking us. Well, no, we're going to Mark and then Romans. Sorry, I'm, I'm kind of in this time warp. I'm constantly looking ahead. But we're looking at Romans, in, 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 I think, in June. And as I'm looking at the book of Romans, um, I got myself off my own side. I, I, I got that squirrel moment, and I don't know where that squirrel went. So Romans, it'll be a good book for us to study. How about that? The answer, though, to our sin problem cannot come from within. There's nothing that I can do. There's nothing that you can do to repair that relationship with God that is broken. But we've gathered the church body. We've sung this morning about the answer and the hope that's found, and that hope is found in Jesus Christ and Him alone so the bad news is this that sin has separated us from God sin has made us enemies with God but God has an answer so I'm going to pick up what Paul has to say in 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 beginning in verse um, I have 18 but I'm going to actually look at verse 17 and read through the end of the chapter if you have a Bible with you open it up if you got your phone handy open up scripture there if you need a Bible to either now or permanently we've got Bibles out in the welcome center we'd love for you to pick those up but Paul is in the middle of a of a train of thought uh, and he continues that in verse 17 and I want us to see 17 because 17 will inform the rest of it I could preach a whole message on 17 so we're not really going to focus on 17 today but I, I need us to see it in 17 he says therefore if anyone is in Christ he is a new creation the old has passed away behold the new has come whenever we place our faith and our trust in Jesus then we can be restored in a right relationship with God and the old is gone and the new has come we're no longer the sinner we used to be uh, uh, the the sin stained person we used to be yes we continue to sin but our sin has been forgiven and now the new has come where the fruit of the spirit begins to grow and blossom and we're changing and living for Jesus all of that being said now let's pick up the passage in 18 when he says all this is from God he's looking back at verse 17 in the previous verses that all of this comes from God all of it's from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation that is in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin. We sang those words just a moment ago. For our sake, he made him, meaning Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Verse 21 is one of the most powerful verses in all Scripture. But before we get there, let's look a little bit closer at some of the other verses. I started by saying that sin has made us enemies of God. And then I, the next point has the word but there because it says, but we can be restored to him 
through Christ. Or we can be reconciled to him through Christ. Look at verse 18. Verse 18, it says that God, through Christ, reconciled us to himself. So in that statement, when I said, but we can be restored to him, is similar to the word reconcile. Uh, this whole thing started by talking about a relationship. There's lots of ways to look at salvation and why we need salvation, how salvation is accomplished. It's all the same story, but kind of different angles or aspects of that salvation story to look at. This one, as it relates to being restored or to be reconciled to God, focuses on a friendship or relationship or that interpersonal relationship being restored or reconnected or put back together. In these four or five verses we've read, we see that the central theme of this entire passage is reconciliation. That this word reconciliation or reconcile or reconciling, any form of that word is used five times in this passage. So we need to see the good news that Jesus brings reconciliation. So all this effort to try to be restored or reconciled to God, it ain't going to happen on our own. But with Jesus, we can be restored or reconciled. So this morning, as you listen to this, as you engage with God's word, I want you to take into consideration you fit in one of two categories this morning either you are still an enemy of God never having been restored or reconciled to him this passage is for you so you can understand how you can be restored in a right relationship with God so others of us have hit the category we're already followers of Jesus we've already been restored we've already been reconciled but this passage will remind us just what that means and therefore what we do with this message of reconciliation so it applies to all of us we see here though that it's through Jesus that we can be restored or reconciled. Let me read to you kind of a definition of reconcile. It means to reestablish friendly interpersonal relationships that have been disrupted. I'm sure you've never had a relationship or a friendship ever severed, have you? Like all your friendships have always been perfect, right? You can laugh, you can smile, you can do something here to let me know you're still awake. But no, our relationships never stay perfect all the time. We can relate to this idea of a broken relationship. And in this with God, though, it's like amped up a million times higher. This, this brokenness that exists because of our sin before God. I wanted to read to you a couple of uh, other translations. Actually, one's a translation, the other's a paraphrase of verse 18. When in the ESV it says that Christ, uh, let's see, in 18 it says that God through Christ reconciled us to himself. The New Living Translation says that God has through Christ brought us back to himself. The message, which is not a translation but a paraphrase, says that God had settled the relationship between us and him through Christ. So this describes what Christ has done for us, that he makes it possible for us to be restored into a right relationship with a holy, perfect God. I mentioned a moment ago, that all of us can relate to broken relationships with humans, right? I've got a news flash with you, or for you, not with you, for you. Those broken relationships with friends, 
it's not 100% the other person's fault. You bear responsibility for the issue as well. I'm not talking about abuse. I'm not talking about some horrible crime. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about just interpersonal relationships that go awry. You own a portion of the brokenness, right? Both people do. But this relationship with God is unique. When it says that God, through Christ, was, we must always understand that 0% of the fault lies with God. 100% lies with us, and yet God takes the initiative to invite us into a relationship with him. So many times, it's hard for us in relationships to seek reconciliation if we feel like the other person has wronged us. We think it's his or her job to come to me. And then maybe that can be made right. Thank God he did not wait on that for us. Instead, he actively initiates the reconciliation process. He does 100% of the work. It's a free gift to us as he has sent his son to die for our sins. And he's the one who gives us the grace and the faith that we need to accept that forgiveness of sins. See, God initiates the reconciliation. He does all the work even though he had done no wrong. It's impossible for us to make peace with God. The only way that we can be at peace with God is because he offers a way and he provided that peace that we need. And that peace is offered through the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Before we move on to the next one, I want us to look at the beginning of verse 19. 19 unpacks verse 18 a little bit more, and it says, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Let's pause right there. What does Paul mean when he says that Christ was reconciling the world to himself? Is he saying 100% of the world is being reconciled to him? No. Rather, it is representative of the entire planet, and the idea is that in the kingdom of God, there are people of all tribes, of all nations, of all languages, of all ethnicities. And this offer of reconciliation is not just available to us here in the United States. I know Michael was being silly in that video and he said, oh, Jesus would smell like the American flag. But the reality is, if we're not careful, we can presume that this message of reconciliation is for us to just share here in the United States. We're the only ones that really get it. My friends, salvation and reconciliation is available worldwide, and it's our responsibility to go out and share that message with others. This morning, I've got a friend that I'm going to meet this weekend, and he is from the continent of Africa. He's from Uganda, correct? And the message that he shares in Uganda, the message we share here in the States, the message that we need to share in Central America and South America and Europe, every corner of this planet should be the same consistent message that reconciliation is only available through Jesus Christ. The Americans have no corner on the market here. In fact, in many ways, the gospel is flourishing more in Africa and in South America and in China and even in places like uh, Iraq that, that we need to learn from them to share the gospel like they do. So the message of reconciliation is available for the entire world. 
kind of summing up this main point here is that Jesus is the source of reconciliation, not ourselves. Look at the third point I've got on your notes. It says that Jesus exchanged his righteousness for our sins. Let me explain what I mean by that. Have you ever read through the Old Testament? Have you ever been bogged down maybe in Leviticus? Anybody relate to this? Like Leviticus can be a tough read at times. And as we read through Leviticus, we read about offering after offering, sacrifice after sacrifice, all the explanations. Am I supposed to wave an offering? Am I supposed to burn it to smithereens? Am I supposed to just simply present it? Like, am I supposed to shake it around? Am I supposed to bring a lamb or a goat or, or, a, or a turtle dove? Like, what? I don't even know what a turtle dove is. What am I supposed to bring to offer to God? And it's so far removed from us, right? But the reality is, Leviticus lays the groundwork for what we're reading here in 2 Corinthians and what we experience through the life, ministry, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in the Gospels because every time they would come into the temple and they would present an animal and they would say, here you go, priest, I'm a sinner and I need my sins forgiven, what would the priest do? The priest would symbolically place his hand, or literally place his hand, and symbolically transfer the sins of the people or the person onto an animal that was innocent. The guilt of the person would be transformed kind of figuratively, metaphorically to something else that had not committed the sin. What kind of offerings were they to bring? Were they supposed to bring the crippled, the lame, the blind? No, they were supposed to bring the perfect, unblemished offerings. Why is that? Because God was pointing to what his plan was all along, that the animal itself would not be able to forgive them their sins, but instead that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one, the anointed one would come, and when he came, the sins of the world would be placed on him. That, that just as that lamb or that bull was perfect or unblemished, Jesus literally is perfect and he had no sin and yet our sin was placed on him and therefore our sin was transferred to him and his righteousness, his purity, his holiness is then transferred to us. Does that make sense? It's almost like this perfect trade, if you will. I don't know if you keep up with the NFL, but I know that if you do, you keep up with the Cowboys because they're God's team. And, and, and we're at this season where they're doing this draft thing and they're trading players and all this. I've got a real good friend that sometimes cheers for this team up north called the Vikings, and my team, the Cowboys, back in the 90s did the most perfect thing ever. They gave them one player who was a good player, and the Cowboys got 743,000 picks in return. The Vikings made a dumb move. The Cowboys got the right move, and they ended up with all of these NFL stars, and the Cowboys actually won a Super Bowl because of the Vikings taking this really dumb trade. Talk to Scott Logan after the service, he'll tell you all about it. <laughs> it's true, amen, bro. The reason I say that is not to bore you with stupid NFL stuff that really doesn't matter in life. But what I am saying is that transfer took place, and in all sincerity, the Cowboys got the better deal, and the Vikings got very little return. Now multiply that to infinity, Jesus took our sin. We transferred, God, I mean, transferred our sins onto him, and in return, we get his righteousness if we place our faith and our trust in him. We fare much, much better than the Cowboys did out of that deal. Our best 
It's filthiness and dirty rags. And our sin is transferred to Jesus. And it says that in result or in return, we receive his righteousness. Look at verse 21 again. In verse 21, for our sake, he, meaning the Father, made him, meaning Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Guys, I want you to hear this, the power of this verse. We live in blatant rebellion against God. That blatant rebellion must be punished. Death must come. The wrath of God must be poured out. And yet I said that he's giving us the opportunity, free grace, to be forgiven of our sins. It looks like God went soft on sin. No, guys, God went hard on sin. He poured out his wrath on his own son. Jesus, he who knew no sin, became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. I remember when I was working at a daycare, I, I know this is crazy, but I worked in daycares back in the day, and after school care, kind of like what uh, Chad's group does here in College Station. And we were out on the playground one day, and one kid decided to sneak a magnifying glass out there. Do you know what that kid wanted to do with the magnifying glass? Yep, the sun is out. That kid, troublemaking kid, wanted to zoom in and let the sun hit that, uh, that magnifying glass so we could have a little wildfire in the, in the backyard. Thankfully, we caught him and stopped him. But think for a moment, what happens when, when, that ha when, when that magnifying glass is out? I don't know whether you can start a fire that way or not, but I think you can if it's strong enough because it's catching all of the sun, figuratively, and, and, and you know, focusing on this one little deal that's going to burn up. On the day that Jesus hung on the cross, he was the focal point of all of humanity's sin for all time. And God looked on Jesus and saw that sin, and he poured out his wrath as Jesus bled and died on our behalf. I want us to be careful here. Jesus, in that moment, did not become a sinner. He took on our sin, yes, but he did it in the sense that he received the wrath of God, but he did not literally become a sinner in that moment. It's just that our sin and his righteousness were transferred, or a big kind of biblical word is imputed, where his, our sin was imputed or placed on Jesus, and upon our faith and acceptance of Jesus Christ as our Savior, his righteousness is imputed or placed on us. So when Jesus when God looks at us, he sees Jesus' righteousness whenever we've accepted him as our Savior instead of our sins. Look back at verse 19. Verse 19a, a, the beginning of verse 19 says this, that, Christ, that in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, and here's the part I want you to see, not counting their trespasses or sins against them. You see, Jesus' death on the cross allows God to look at us who've placed our faith and trust in Jesus 
And it's as if we never sinned because he sees the righteousness of Jesus on us. Again, I want to make it clear, this is not universal righteousness that's automatically placed, like Jesus died on the cross, 100% of us around the world are saved. No, the reality is this is only placed on us and actualized in our lives whenever we've placed our faith and our trust in Jesus. But in that moment, God declares us righteous, even though we are not righteous in and of ourselves. I want us to look at a couple of aspects of, of this phrase when it says that we become, that we might become, at the end of 21, that we might become the righteousness of God. There's two aspects of being righteous. Think of it this way for me or with me. There's two ways that you and I, if we're followers of Jesus, can and should be righteous. The first primary way that we are righteous is the fact that we are made righteous, where we have become righteous because of a legal declaration when Christ's righteousness was imputed or transferred or exchanged to us. So positionally, those of us who have trusted in Jesus, even though we are not literally righteous, we are as if we are righteous because Christ's righteousness has been placed on us. But we shouldn't stop there, right? Like the second aspect of righteousness is a righteousness of what we are becoming. It's this expectation that our status of being righteous will now cause us to increasingly actualize that righteousness in our conduct, in our lives. What I mean by that is, if I place my faith and my trust in Jesus, then he declares me righteous and therefore I am in right relationship with God. But even after that moment, the, he's calling me to actualize that in my life as I'm allowing the Holy Spirit to work in my life in such a way that I'm becoming more and more and more like Jesus by his work inside of me. All too often, we as followers of Jesus continue to walk in the flesh. We continue to live our lives as if we want to be part of what's fun and what we want to do and calling our shots. I was talking with one of my friends at, 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 in the church yesterday, or Friday, I mean, Friday morning in my office, and we were talking about what is it that we feed our soul with? Do I feed my soul with the nonsense of what the world has to offer? And in that sense, then I'm not living a righteous life. But am I feeding my soul with God's word, with prayer, with Bible study, with community, with being a part of a D group or a hope group or doing ministry or, or, or seeking his presence, sitting in his presence, worshiping him, not just on Sunday morning. If I'm doing those things, then the Holy Spirit is at work within me, welling up within me his righteousness where he's still doing the work in me, but I'm becoming more and more righteous. So guys, gals, let's celebrate the fact that we can experience the righteousness of Christ by what he did for us, but we need to acknowledge that we have a role or a responsibility to begin to live out that righteousness in our daily lives as well. So we see that the means of our reconciliation is the work of Christ through his exchange of his righteousness for our sins on the cross. And then now, what does that mean for us? Let's look at the last point. Now, he is sending us out to proclaim the message of reconciliation. At the end of verse 19, in verse 20, it says this. That he has entrusted to us 
the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, making, sorry, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Look at several phrases that are here. He says that we have been given this ministry of reconciliation in verse 18, at the end of verse 18, that he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And then in 19, it says he's entrusted it to us. And then in 20, it says he makes us his ambassadors. And also in 20, it says he makes his appeal through us. And also in verse 20, it says he wants us to implore others to be reconciled to God. There are five different times in this passage where it's clear that those of us that have placed our faith and our trust in Jesus are now sent out to live a sent life life by by proclaiming boldly the message and ministry of reconciliation i want you to see that in verse 19 he refers to it as the message of reconciliation the reason i say that is because if we're not real careful we'll go i'm going to live out the ministry of reconciliation which it also says ministry here it, it, it additionally says message ministry of reconciliation we might think oh as long as i live a good life as long as my neighbors see me and i wave at them and say howdy it, it, maybe if i invite my friends to church maybe if i throw the name jesus out a few times in conversation with them maybe if i just kind of live a good upstanding life then they'll see jesus in me no, that's not the only way we're to be about this message of reconciliation. To be about the message of reconciliation is to use our words, to use our mouth, to speak the truth of salvation being available only through Jesus. Are we looking for opportunities to tell others literally with our words the hope that's found in Jesus? I want us to think for a minute about this phrase, ambassador. In this passage, it says that we are ambassadors for Christ. If you're my age or maybe older, if you grew up in Baptist churches, you may remember an organization called RAs. It stood for Royal Ambassadors. Back in the day, I was like, I don't even know what that means. Like, I know what it means, but I don't know what it means. It's back to this verse. Like, so what does it mean to be an ambassador for Christ? Think about what an ambassador does, like on the political spectrum. An ambassador is someone who is a representative of a higher authority. Like the, the ambassador doesn't have authority on his or her own part. It's the authority that's given to them by their government, right? So as ambassadors for Christ, we have no authority, but we speak with the authority of God's word that Jesus has sent us. We represent him in the world. Here's another aspect of, a, of an ambassador. An ambassador typically lives in a, another country right they don't live in the country where they're from or where their citizenship is oftentimes it's in a place where they speak a different language different culture different experiences the reality is that an ambassador is living in a foreign place not their homeland we as ambassadors of christ live on this earth live in this country and ultimately we're not a citizen of texas or ultimately a citizen of the united states ultimately we are a citizen of the kingdom of god and as ambassadors of christ we must remember that first and foremost that we are living in a foreign land and that we should stand up for kingdom principles. And then one other aspect of, a, of an ambassador, he or she will speak on behalf or upon the authority of the ruler. Anytime an ambassador represents the United States of America, he or she is representing what the president and those that are in charge are kind of telling them to, to share. And so the reality is that whenever you and I 
are ambassadors of Christ and we tell the message of the hope of reconciliation through Jesus Christ, the message that we're proclaiming has no authority because of what we say, but because of who sent us on this mission, and that is God. It's his message, not ours. As I was studying this week, I found out that back in the day in the Roman Empire, whenever they would uh, secure, you know what they did when they secured new provinces, like they conquested and won battles, but when they would secure a new province, they would send 10 ambassadors to that province to set it up into the Roman Empire. And when they came there, their job was to uh, arrange the terms of peace and to draw up a constitution, and they were responsible for bringing these others into the family of the Roman Empire. And the reality is that as ambassadors of Christ, it's our job and our responsibility to take the terms of a peace treaty that is available only through Jesus Christ to the world and share that peace treaty with the world so that they can be welcomed into the family of God, so they can be kingdom citizens, and that is what God is calling us to do. I also love this aspect. Whenever it says that we are to make his appeal, we're to make God's appeal to the world. It almost feels like we're like threatening the world because God's angry at the world and all of that. But here's the cool thing. The word in Greek for making his appeal is the word called perikaleo, and that word means comfort. In fact, if you read chapter 1 of, of 2 Corinthians, it sees, says that word over and over again, that we're to comfort those who have affliction. It's the same word. So whenever we make an appeal to the world, we are trying to comfort them with the good news of Jesus Christ. And so God is not up there with his hands on his hips. Instead, God is there with his arms wide open, re ready to be gentle and receive those who would come to him for forgiveness of sins, to be restored in right relationship with him. You see, God doesn't make unfair demands for our relationship to be restored to him. He makes a free, grace-filled demand. Accept Jesus as your Savior, and you'll be restored to me. There's no, and do this, and pay me back, and I'll hold it against you forever, and this, and this, and this. No, it's a pure invitation to reconciliation. Guys and gals, that's our job, is to go out and proclaim this message to others. And so the question is, how could I do that? How could you do that? You might want to jot these ideas down. Here's what I came up with this week. It's nothing new, it's nothing original, it's nothing rocket science, but hopefully it's tangible for you. How can you, how can I be the message or bring the message of reconciliation to those around us? Here's what I thought of. What if we started in our neighborhood? I know what some of you are thinking, hey, I don't live in a neighborhood, stay with me, I'll get to you in a second. But many of us in College Station, Brian, live in a neighborhood. So what if we started in our neighborhood? I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but thankfully, COVID is kind of beginning to decline a little bit here in our area. Not everywhere. We need to be praying for India and some other countries really ravished by it. But kind of that's on the, hopefully, downward trend a little bit right now. And the weather is warming up, like it's getting summertime and all of that. So let's be outside. What would it look like if you intentionally went outside, began to engage with your, uh, in relationships with your neighbors? What if you decided, I'm going to deliver some baked goods? And I've been neighbors with this person for seven years. I've never met them as far as learned their name. And I'm going to swallow my pride and go knock on the door and bring some baked goods and go, hey, neighbor, like we're neighbors. I don't know what your name is, but can I introduce myself? Like get to know your neighbor. 
Then what would it look like? I know on my, on my block, I don't know what your block looks like, there are 10 houses. Mine is one of the 10, go figure. And so there are 10 houses on our block. What would it look like if I went to all the nine other houses? What if we went and we knocked on the door, introduced ourselves, learned their name, offered them maybe a baked good or whatever, and then what if we planned a block party for our neighborhood and invited all of those families to a block party and we spent time together? But what if I was intentional, instead of just having a block party and say, boy, that was fun, and talk about the weather and all of these things, what if I actually, in the middle of it all, look for opportunities to say, hey, we're going to be starting a Bible study, and if anybody's interested, we'd love for you to come. We're going to do a Bible study on such and such night of the week, and y'all can come. And, and what if I took advantage at that party to also ask how to pray for them? What if I just took some easy steps like that, then I'm going to be able to be in a position where I can share the message of the hope of Jesus and the reconciliation that's found in him. If you don't live in a neighborhood, like you live out in the country, ain't nobody around you, you can do the same sort of thing at your workplace. You can do the same sort of thing at your school, on your sports team, wherever you go. But the reality is this. All of us, 100% of the world, has always been in an open rebellion against Jesus Christ, against God, and, and that rebellion leads to death. Spiritual separation from God from all eternity, but the good news is found that Jesus Christ died for our sins. If we'll place our faith and our trust in him, then we can be restored, and then now he is sending us out to go tell others about this hope. So that's a practical way you could live it out with your neighbors, doing some things intentionally to share the gospel with them. But what do we do with this particular message? Like, what's the next steps? I've, I've, I've got some possible next steps. and Maybe you want to fill out your connection card. It's there uh, uh, in the chair in front of you. You can also get it on the QR code and online. I would love to hear what God's doing in your life. Here are some possible next steps. Some of us need to experience salvation for the very first time. You're trying your hardest. You're doing your very best to be made right with God, and it fails 100% of the time. The only way that you can be restored into a relationship with God is through Jesus Christ by acknowledging that you're a sinner in need of forgiveness and that Jesus paid the price for you by his death, burial, and his resurrection. And today, the step you need to take is salvation. There's others of you. The next step you need to take is to worship God and to have profound gratefulness for the truth of verse 21, that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You're a follower of Jesus, but you're taking it casually, and you need to stop and worship Jesus Christ this morning and say, thank you, thank you, thank you for dying for my sins. You're at church, you're checking the box off, you're a pretty good moral person, but you need to be more sincere about your faith with Jesus. I was talking this morning with one of our church members about somebody else that's a part of our church family, and here's the phrase that came out of his mouth, and I couldn't agree more about the person we were talking about. He said, that dude just loves Jesus. May our lives be marked by the fact that we just love 
Jesus. And so some of us may need to sit in this this morning and be grateful for what Jesus has done on our behalf. Kind of going hand in hand with that, the third next step that I have down here is that some of us need to begin to live out our righteousness. Like we're a believer in Jesus, we're grateful for the righteousness that he gave us, but we're doing absolutely nothing to become more and more like Jesus. We're not active in our faith. We're not growing in our faith. We're not feeding our soul with the things of the Spirit. We're not spending time with God. We're not reading God's Word. We're not doing anything to seek to live for Him. And I'm not saying we do it in our own strength, our own power. It's God doing His work through us. But we also have to step up to the plate and say, God, I'm an open vessel. Use me. Are you growing in your faith? And then the last Next step that I have written down here is to embrace and proclaim the message of reconciliation. Maybe you're growing in your faith. You're not a perfect Christian, but you're becoming more and more righteous. But the reality is you're not proclaiming that gospel message to the world who needs to hear it. It's not the job of the missionaries. It's not the job of the pastors, it's not the job of the elders, it's not the job of the deacons, it's not the job of the hope group leaders, it's not the job of the ministry leaders, it's the job of all of us that are followers of Jesus Christ. We have been given, we have been entrusted with this message of reconciliation. What are we going to do with it? Let me pray for us. God, thank you. Thank you that you sent your son who knew no sin to become sin that we might to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. God, I pray that you would use these next few moments, that you would allow us to respond as you lead us, that we would follow you, that we'd say yes to salvation, that we'd say thank you for your, for your amazing price that you paid for us, that we would say yes to becoming more righteous and, and being more sincere and growing in our faith, that we'd say yes to proclaiming the gospel message of reconciliation to the world around us, that we would say yes to you, and that we would do this together as a church family. Lead us in this moment. May we not walk out of here unchanged. It's in Jesus' powerful name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us?